0: Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. So today we are joined by Roberta Matson, who is the author of many books uh, namely Suddenly in Charge, The Magnetic Leader, Evergreen Talent and the soon to be released Can We Talk and when I say she's the, written the book on leadership she's written the book on leadership quite literally so very excited to have you on the show today welcome.
1: Thank you I'm excited to be here.
0: So you hail from a town I'm very fond of in uh, Boston and Massachusetts and um, very, very big in the tech scene, I suppose, notably probably because of HubSpot. I, I was actually a former HubSpot employee. I was lucky enough to be one of the first 15 here in Europe as oh, they wow. kind of scaled up. And um, so very kind of familiar with that kind of tech ecosystem around MIT, et cetera, and Harvard. Um, a bit of a mini Silicon Valley in and of itself, and uh, I suppose a lot of the time on this show we talk a lot to CEOs, founders, co-founders. Um, I speak with VCs also, and um, there's a lot of liquidity in the market at the moment. We spoke to um our guest recently who, who was kind of walking through that and smart money and dumb money and you know where ideas kind of flourish and maybe where they fall flat in their face as well, etc. But I think. The biggest takeaway from the conversations I've been having so far um, throughout the course of the number of seasons on this podcast has been around the people piece, right? And that's the most important component in the whole equation to make it work. You've got to have good people you can work with that complement each other. Um, But maybe just kind of before we get to that, like, take us through, you know, your career. You know, you've been at this for decades at this point. You are the authority in this. Um, what kind of drove you to become part of this and why are you so passionate about it? Maybe take us through why it's so important today, if you would.
1: Sure. Um, well, I don't exactly know why I became, well, I do know why I became so passionate about it. So I'm gonna work backwards. Um, I know what it's like to work in an organization where you have, shall we say, a really crappy boss. Okay, okay. so I, I've i experienced that. and. I've experienced it way more than once. So um, everything that I learned about leadership, I really learned from the leaders that I worked with and everything that I saw and observed, I decided I would do differently. And so that's how I got into the whole leadership space. Um, I just knew there had to be a better way, a better way of treating people and making people feel like they really wanted to be at work um, rather than repelling talent.
0: Right. Okay. So give me an example of what you would term to be kind of crappy leadership. I mean, a few things come to mind for me, like this kind of autocratic, bureaucratic, the beatings will continue until morale approved type of approach. Right. So tell me about what that, what that was for you and maybe, you know, where you, why you still see it playing out today and why it drives you so crazy.
1: Well, um, I can recall a particular situation where I was working in a consulting firm, a financial consulting firm, and um, the job that I had taken for a boss, a particular boss, when I got there, she told me like she was leaving. And so I got a new boss and the new boss was, was the one that, you know, really sent me off in a tizzy. Mm. And so, you know, we had our ups and downs and I, I thought we were sort of evening out And then one day she said to me, "Um, can we talk? And I said, okay, right? And of course, when you hear those words, you're like, oh my God, this is it. Well, it was it. And she said to me, "Um, you're not meeting my expectations. Followed by, however, I'm not sure I ever told you what they were. Okay, and so, you know, I went to Northeastern University she went to Harvard and I thought to myself, maybe at Harvard, they had like mind reading <laughs> on that. Uh, Northeastern, you know, we were working class kids and we were on co-op and we didn't get that class. And so it just showed me, you know, what happens when people are not willing to have these difficult conversations and right. had, she sat down with me, you know, when she saw something that she didn't like and and told me and had she shared with me what her expectations were I wouldn't have immediately like checked out.
0: Okay so in terms of um, how to best do that process like I mean when you when you coach and mentor people and um, where do you start I mean how, how does how does a CEO come to you and say, you know what, we have crappy management, I have a problem. It's, it's like, you know, I'm gonna call my own children ugly here almost, like how, do, how does that start? And then how do you gently go to the management team and say, we have this terrible feedback, we need to improve, how are we gonna create a plan? What, what does that look like for you in your consulting world?
1: Well, they usually don't come to me and tell me that they have a crappy team. <laughs> okay so that's first and foremost but what they do say is you know we think we could be better and they're right you know they can be better everyone can be better uh you know when i look at some of the greatest athletes you know one in particular um tom brady who used to be with our wonderful patriots (laughs) you know i mean this guy is like probably the best quarterback in the entire world and He has like, you know, five coaches, right? So if he thinks he can be better, I think we could all be better as well. And so we wind up having a conversation more about, you know, how do we build on their strengths, right? Because it's a lot easier and more effective and quicker to build on strengths than it is to try to change, you know, one thing that might be maybe even insignificant in the end.
0: And in terms of um, the kind of human nature components that you see, um, you know, for me it sounds like Mike. One of my life philosophies is you can avoid your um, natural instincts, you'll do very, very well, right? It's that kind of ability to slip into a zone where it's comfortable, etc. If you can avoid that, I think you'll be successful. And I suppose for me, having hard leadership conversations is really you don't wanna go there because it's uncomfortable, right? So, as, as, as people say, life begins outside of your comfort zone. So, how do you set the stage for, you know, getting people comfortable with being uncomfortable?
1: Well, when I work with clients, I mean, we start with some of the less challenging conversations, right, and, you know, I have them, you know, make a list of, you know, what are some of the conversations that you really need to have that you haven't been having, right? So, some of them are not as complicated as others. So when you start with that premise and you start to build confidence and you learn how to, you know, you learn the steps necessary to have a successful conversation, then when you have to have a more challenging conversation, you're that much better prepared, right? Okay. So I wouldn't start with somebody and say, you know, um, okay, you have to fire someone, let's start there, right? Because that's not so easy. But if it's like having a conversation about somebody who has, you know, consistently been tardy, um, we can handle that.
0: Got it. And maybe just from your your wealth of experience over the years, um, like how does that translate to revenue? Obviously, without naming names, like what do you see in terms of that tardy bad behavior that has, um, you know, negatively impacted an org- organization? But then ultimately, you're able to turn around and and, and obviously created that lovely hockey stick we're all looking and aspiring toward?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Actually, I used to work for an overnight delivery service and man, all we sold was, you know, delivering packages on time. So if you weren't there, you know, for your shift, or if you weren't in that truck on time, you didn't get the package there. So uh, what we found happening was a lot of the supervisors and managers didn't want to have these difficult conversations because they were afraid of losing people, right? <laughs> Even though there were some nights that they prayed these people would like leave. Um, and so what we wound up doing is, and it might seem like it's not related, but it really is, is I created a program called Selecting for Success. And I trained these hiring managers on how to select employees. And once they mastered this skill, they felt really empowered and they no longer felt beholden to these people. And they started holding people accountable because they were confident if somebody left or they needed to fire somebody, that they could find someone else who was as well, not as good because these people weren't great, right? (laughs) But someone who was a heck of a lot better.
0: And, and how do you take that to the next level? So, how do you, so you, you start out with a basis of we know we're underperforming relative to our um, uh, you know, operational baseline, as I like to call it. And if you look at guys like Grant Cardone, he says you, know, you shouldn't actually target people in sales, which is completely counterintuitive. He's like, nobody can ever target what your actual potential is, right? Your full on potential. How do you take it from that baseline to like the stellar heights of somebody's full potential? And maybe tell me tell me a story of something that you're really, really proud of in terms of a turnaround.
1: Well, I mean, the fact that, <clears throat> here, here's a recent example. Um, we were, I was working with a company who had massive levels of turnover and this particular organization, um, this area that I was working in was their customer, um, call center, right? And so you might say, oh, every call center has lots of turnover. Well, you know, that's just an excuse, right? (laughs) That just is like, we don't really know why people are leaving and quite honestly, we don't really care. Okay, so um, I went in there and said, we got to figure out why people are leaving. And it's more than likely not the reason they're telling you. And so it turns out that by having conversations with former employees and asking them, not what was your reason for leaving, but asking them um, what prompted you to look for a new opportunity? Because that's nice. different. Yes. I was able to feed back to them some really eye opening information. And when I gave them the report in, in, in the debrief, I had a section called In Their Words, and I quoted verbatim what they told me without names. And my client just said, this is heartbreaking, breaking. I this. I can't believe this is how they really fe- felt. This is awful. Like we have to do something. And as a result, um, they went in and made some significant changes and slashed that turnover in
0: half. Wow, wow, okay. So I suppose, um, that for me is an example of leadership. We started out this conversation by talking about a boss, um, I'm keen to know your philosophy and your, your, you know, some of the discerning factors that you feel determine a leader versus a boss. For me, I feel a boss is a functional element. I feel it's really something you use a descriptive term for a role or a position you're not happy in a leader is somebody you aspire to um, go along a journey with and be part of because you have an affinity with them. You share values that they share, et cetera, as well. And what what does leadership mean to you in real terms?
1: Well, I'm not that deep. (laughs) Okay. I don't really separate a lot of people are like, what's the difference between management and leadership or management and being a boss? I mean listen, um, you're leading people, right? And so I think first and foremost, it's really important to understand that leadership isn't for everyone. And what oftentimes happens, especially in tech, you know you're a great programmer. Congratulations, you're in charge of the team. Right, And you're like, "Um, I don't have those skills and I don't want to be a leader, but you don't say that because you're afraid if you decline the opportunity like there won't be more opportunities later, and so I think organizations need to be very careful as to who they let into these positions.
0: How often does that happen though? Because it seems to me like in a pretty much like the areas that we would work in a lot would be around high, high potential startups. So you're talking about going from, you know, 10 folks to, you know, several hundred folks in 18 months, right? Which is insane growth. It's absolutely insane. Um, what, what are the biggest mistakes? Like you gave an example there about you're a good programmer, go, go run the team, et cetera. Like, What's the churn rate of of, and turnover of employees at that level? And what what other reasons are people just making a complete mess of that situation where they could be doing better?
1: Well, they're making a mess of it because not only are they put into these roles and not asked, but then they're not given the support. And so my first book is Suddenly in Charge. And that's a book about what happens when you're tossed into management with little more than a prayer. And I wrote that book because it was a book that I wished I had when at 24 years old, I was suddenly in charge. And so I think we have to do better. I don't think you can just toss people into these jobs and give them a title and expect them to perform like a seal. I think we need to make sure that they have the development that they need. And I think they need to have coaching because listen, I've written six books, right? I tell you, go read them all. But the minute you're in a situation where you're faced with a challenge, you're not going to be like, oh, was that Evergreen Talent Chapter 3? No, you're going to want to pick, pick up the phone, call your coach and say, I'm in a pickle here. I need some help. And so when you provide this kind of support to your leaders, it's incredible what, you know, the amount of growth that they have in a short period of time.
0: Um, what, what do you think is the most important quality to have therein? I mean, for me, I think it's coachability. Would you agree with that in terms of somebody who has a humility and a human face? What, what, what do you think makes, makes that person? Cause you mentioned earlier about some people are just not cut out for it, right? What do you think are the discerning factors that determine whether they are or not cut out for it?
1: Well, first of all, aptitude, right? Um, I'm raising a techie. <laughs> okay. I have a son who is a computer science major. And I can tell you, I don't think he's going to be in management. And I don't think he wants to be in management, but he is a spectacular programmer, very talented. I don't know how all the coaching in the world might not get him there. And he has no interest. So you've got to have, you know, the ability, you have to have the interest, you have to, um, you have to want it. Right, you have to want it, and when we look at great leaders, the people that I mostly work with are leaders who are good, but really, really, really want to be great. And those leaders will take those risks and they'll put themselves out there and they're open to that growth and that makes a huge
0: difference. Yeah, I totally agree with you. we have talked on prior shows about imposter syndrome and actually how it's one of the greatest enablers that you can actually have is, I definitely experienced this when I was a, a leader in charge of a whole European division about 10, 10 plus years ago. And I was like, I really, I told a great story in my interview and I'm not, I'm not sure why they even want to believe it, but it worked. And now I have this problem to solve. And I started reading books and that was that was I, I read Good to Great and, and, you know, all those sorts of books which did their job and it helped. And I think I had to kind of want to learn. But, you know, I was like, I could be found out at any moment here. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, right. Um, now we hit our numbers. We, we did we did the business. And, you know, I have I have the plaque on my wall here behind me. Um, but what what um what are some of the motivating factors? I mean, six books is no small it's no small uh, undertaking um, take me through what compels you just shifting gears here because it's yeah. something I'm fascinated by how the hell do you sit down and write a book quite frankly
1: <laughs> well first you sign a contract sure <clears throat> once you sign a contract it's a legal binding document and you have this much time to deliver the manuscript so then there's no messing around right
0: So, I mean, you signed up to a contract. I mean, I'm curious to know, like, what motivated you to sign up to that contract?
1: Well, a few things. Um, My first book, you know, that's always very exciting, right? Um, You know, all my books are commercially published, so that's not an easy feat. And it's even harder today. But um, so the first book was great. It was suddenly in charge. It's done awesome. A a new edition came out in 2017. It sells like hotcakes. It's a really, really solid book. And then my publisher was so pleased with it. um, They asked me to write another book. So I wrote that book. And then that book led to another book because I had an idea. And then my mentor said, You know, you're not really an author until you have three books. So Mm. I was like, Okay, I have two. Well, damn it, I'm going to be an author. So I wrote three, you know, and it just sort of, you know, cascaded from there.
0: Well, okay, that's, a, that's as good a reason as any um, that I, I've ever heard of, for sure. Um, it must be the one of the most rewarding and best lead generating tools that there is by way of, of authority, I would have thought, right? It's, it's got to be a great way to get people's attention.
1: Well, you would have thought that until COVID hit, because in February of 2020, my book, Evergreen Talent, released. And in March of 2020, the pandemic followed. And so that was a tough one. Um, Although now that we're kind of moving out of it, um, that book seems to be picking up some speed. It's evergreen talent. So yes, it's definitely a great calling card. But when you put that much work into it and then like you feel like nobody sees it, it's like, oh no. So that's why I wrote another book, Can We Talk?
0: So um, I wanna get to that now in a moment, but before we do, I wanna talk about evergreen talent. Um, so it's, it's really about you know, hiring talent and cultivating them for a more sustainable long-term view. Um, what I wanna know in the context of COVID is how does that play out in a virtual world?
1: Yeah, it's even more important now than it was when I wrote it. Um, I mean, man, today, the world is your oyster. I mean, look at us, Mm -hmm. you know, you're in Ireland, I'm in the US, right? If you wanted to hire me right now, you could,
0: Mm -hmm. right?
1: So there are no barriers. And you know, that might be exciting for some people. um, Because that means that you can pull and attract talent from anywhere in the world. So you're no longer restricted to the fact that, you know, your business is in Des Moines, Iowa, or something where maybe that's not the tech capital of the world. Now you have access to tech talent everywhere. And, you know, there's a good side to that. And then there's a not so good side, because that means that I can come and poach your talent now. There's no borders anymore.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we recruit all over the world. Um, I do find the APAC time zone a little bit tricky to manage, so I tend to steer away from that, well, at least for now. But um, yeah, absolutely, we we recruit across the world, and I think that has made us kind of more global. But um, have you seen any downside to that by way of, like, this immediate grat- gratification? I spoke with an MD recently, actually, on the podcast, and, you know, I, I've I've listened to various ones of Joe Rogan's where, you know, they talk about this idea of, like, swimming in serotonin you know your brain's marinating in serotonin because you're just you've got your phone in your right hand the whole time do you see a downside play out in some of the leadership conversations you're having because of that immediacy and that kind of expected you know instant gratification
1: um i think it depends i think it depends on the person and on the you know role that they're overseeing But i think i mean i would really say it depends there's a you know some people are doing really well in the virtual world and others are like, oh my gosh, let me out. I need people.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah, I think there's a balance there though, right? I mean, um, I think that today you have to balance yourself between functional obligations and then actually having a having a life. And I think there's also this kind of um, flippancy in society almost today as well. How do you balance off, like how do you identify the folks who are, you know, genuinely just needing support versus the snowflake generation, right? The guys who just are so flaky. They're just, you know, whatever. What what does that look like to you? If you get my point? I've never heard of the snowflake generation, but I might have to steal it.
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I mean, what I tell my clients is, you know, the best thing you can do is just check in, check in with your people and, you know, not like where's the report. It's like, you know, how are you doing? How, how are you really doing? Right? <laughs> Not like, how are you doing? Okay, great. Glad to hear I got an assignment for you or whatever. And just really listen, listen really deeply. And, and, you know, try to do it if you can't do it in person over zoom, so you can see their face, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, look around, look at the room they're in, it will tell you a lot. Know if they're in their bedroom, then you're like, oh my gosh, this person has been like cooped up in their room for 125 days or whatever, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I I fully agree with that. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for um kind of that personal connection um and how you really need to relate to somebody on a personal level. You know, there's obviously friendships that will develop in a work environment. But I think that other than that, you really need to foster a kind of a collaborative team-based approach.
1: Well, Um, so let's sorry, go ahead. I think what we have to keep in mind is that people don't work for companies, they work for people.
0: Yes, and they don't leave companies, they leave leaders.
1: So if you know, if you want to attract people, then you need to have, you know, cultivate those relationships. And that's critical. And too many companies are so focused on, you know, sending their messaging out about what a great company they are that they're leaving the people piece out, which is a huge mistake.
0: Right, and it's the biggest reason. I, I think it's north 75% from the from studies I've read. Um, so let's get right into that. So let's talk about, can we talk? Um, seven principles for managing difficult conversations um, at work. Talk to me about the seven principles and what drove you to to write it down on paper, if you would.
1: Well, um, my editor said I had to have seven.
0: (laughs) Okay, right, got it, okay.
1: I could have had (laughs) 10, I could have had five, but we had, we settled on seven. Um, You know, it's all about, you know, the seven principles are confidence, clarity, um, compassion, curiosity, compromise credibility and courage and that's a, that's a lot right and so in the book we build upon you know how you know in order to have these conversations and the way the book is designed which makes it very unique is it's not just a book for leaders on how to have a difficult conversation with their employee it's for the employee whose boss says can we talk it's also written for the employee who has a coworker that they're having an issue with and they need to have a difficult conversation. And so all of these principles, you know, combined um, when you have the right recipe and you let them marinate really help people develop productive relationships.
0: Um, and any examples of that that you saw in your consulting work that kind of drove you toward this um- set of seven principles?
1: Yes, I mean, clarity, right? Anytime you think about, you know, oh, I'm gonna tell Joe this, like you, many people don't stop and think, okay, great, but what do you want Joe to do? You say you want him to stop doing this, but what is it ultimately that you want him to do? And you have to get really clear before you sit down and have these kinds of conversations because the person on the receiving end is probably gonna say, well, what do you mean, right? And you better have an answer or do you have some examples? Well, I just heard you were a problem over here. Like you have to be prepared.
0: Yeah, I agree. I hate that word just, I really hate it. Um, I know in Irish society, we use it a lot and it's a real, I'm trying to get out of jail card here. It's I just thought this or I just did that or it's just this, it's, it belittles what, everything that proceeds that. Uh, by using that one word i hate it um i think where if you if you try and address things why because you're, you're you're demeaning yourself and you're demeaning the conversation and the seriousness of what you're trying to get across whereas i feel if you approach it from a I feel felt found kind of scenario you get to the truth and you get to the real yeah. um crux of what you're trying to address you know you, you can use it in a sales conversation as well you want to get to the truth. You know,
1: it's great. You know, I, in the book, I write, you know, if you are going to have a difficult conversation with your boss, right, you know, you can't, you can't say, you know, I think you're a micromanager, although you're probably right, you know, but you can say, you know, I feel like I'm being managed very closely and that's really not necessary. You know, I mean, so nobody can tell you that your feelings are wrong. True. True but they can say, well, no, I'm not, right? So um, yeah, I definitely encourage people to, you know, set the conversation up so that they're not putting the other person on the defense. And so, I mean, the end goal of any difficult conversation is to come out and both of you feeling like, you know, okay, I can live with this and that we both have won a little bit, hence the compromise and that you're building on a productive relationship. It's not a one and done,
0: right? Yeah, I agree. And as Dale Carnegie says, don't ever criticize, condemn or complain because that will start you off on the wrong footing straight away. Um, And yeah, I I think that's very prudent. I think that's exactly right. And if you can both acknowledge where you both are and somebody said to me recently, does this individual, if you go into the conversation, this is particularly true in family situations. Does this individual have the ability to understand where I'm coming from? Do they have the ability to comprehend what I'm saying and why I'm saying it? And the second part of it is, does this individual have the capacity and the ability to make the change that is required for us to both get the outcome we desire? At least I get the outcome that I desire for us to be more productive. And, and I think if you can if you can come at it from that perspective, I think you're you're going to set yourself up for potentially resolving it and. Um, how do you deal with somebody who's not receptive to difficult conversations? And um, so it's all very well empowering somebody who doesn't like having them and needs to have them. How do you deal with somebody, and, and maybe this person knows going into it, if I have this conversation with this person, they're gonna really just go in, back into their shell, right? How do, you, how do you address that?
1: Well, I mean, I think there are different levels, right? You know, When you're having these kinds of conversations, there's, you know, I'd like you to, um, I, I want you to, then there's the elevated, I need you to, or right. you must, right? So, right. you know, you start out with, you know, i I was wondering if you'd be open to, right. Um, or, you know, I need you to, because you don't have time, you're a leader, you don't have time to, you know, tippy toe here, you're, you're saying, I need this done this way. But, you know, you can keep elevating it. And if a person isn't receptive to hearing what you need and they're your employee, then they're not going to work out very well um, under your management, right? And so then you have to say, you know, my sense is, is that we're not going to be able to work together. So let's see if there's another place in the organization where you're you'll find a better fit, or let me help you make this transition out.
0: What's your sense for? the percentages, even just bullparking it as to where that diverges and where that conversation goes with folks wanting to um, be on board with that versus them going, you're right, we need to move on. What's your sense for that split?
1: Um, I think most people feel like they want to continue, you know, because they're scared of the unknown, unless it's so, unless you have had conversations and it's apparent to both of you, you know what, it's sort of like going to a marriage counselor when you know you know, we've we've talked this over a million times and this isn't going anywhere. Now we have to figure out how to separate. So it, it depends on the individual. I'd say more often than not, they're going to tell you that they want to work on it. That doesn't mean that they're really working on it. And at the same time, they may be
0: looking for other opportunities. Right. Why can't human beings just tell the truth and be open and honest and transparent? <laughs> what the hell's wrong with well, it?
1: Then you're going to have to read Suddenly in Charge and you're going to have to read the book on manage, the side on managing up because you're going to know why. <laughs>
0: OK, well, OK, well, I think that's a, a great teaser for, for our listeners. Um, well look, I, I really want to thank you for uh, spending the time with us today. Some great insights there into uh, how you can manage your uh, group dynamic from a leadership perspective, being a leader or as importantly, being an individual contributor who needs to manage your leader and be more productive. So, look, I really want to thank you for uh, helping us out today, Roberta, and I look forward to welcoming you and working with you in the future on shows to come.
1: Thank you. Same here.
0: You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.